This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network and Maj Don are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy, sell, short, cover securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value if we are long and fall if we are short. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to Avoiding the Crowd podcast. I am your producer, Bobby Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft, B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. But enough about me. This is all about who you see right here. Okay, we got our host, Maj Sway Don. But enough about him. It's about who else we got right here. We got Tobias Carlisle from at, at Greenback, the Acquires Multiple, the Acquires Podcast, friend of the SNM Podcast Network. I think that's the most important title, but I digress. With that, what's up, gents? How are we doing today? I'm great, Bobby. Thanks for making forcing to, Tobias to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I, re- I really, I really broke his legs to do it. Any, any chance to chat to you, Mush? <laughs> oh man, so, yeah. Well, this is great because I mean, I mean, the last time we spoke was maybe. Um, the summer, I guess, when you were gracious enough to have me on your podcast, which was awesome, man. It helped really helped me um, get out there a lot. And we helped Geo a lot. And we got a lot of followers from that, so I really appreciate that. Oh, good, my pleasure. I'm I'm happy it worked. That was a really a fun time. Well, with that, I'm gonna I'm gonna hide, and you guys you guys chat. You guys have some fun. I'll, I'll be I'll be over here. And uh, all right, peace. Hey, I'll be right, listening. Cool, Let's hear what Thanks, goes Bobby. on. All right. <laughs> So I, just, I wanted to talk about a few things. I just wanted to, you know, ch- chat a little bit today and see where it goes. Um, uh, we really never, I never had a discussion with you about your, you know, acquires multiple website. And I think I find it really interesting. I like, you know, I read about it and been to the website to look at it. And, and you have this ETF now, um, you're changing focus with your ETF, which I think is pretty interesting. I have some questions around that. So I want to just, just talk about some of the things that have been going on in your, in, in your life, your last six months. And, the direction you've been going and why you've made some of the changes you made. Yeah. So we, we've uh, taken over uh, another fund. It used to be the old DVP and now it's, we, we've renamed it deep. So I've partnered with the guys at Roundhill. They have uh, two other ETFs and uh, they were looking for a, for a value tilt because, you know, everybody knows that value has been underperforming. And uh, I think that the opportunity through that underperformance has been getting greater and greater. And I think that the place where it, I think the two places where it's most magnified are small and micro cap value. And I also think that the spread between the most overvalued and the most undervalued is as wide as it's ever been. So I have two ETFs. I have Zig, which is a long short value ETF. And I have Deep, which is long only small and micro cap. And together they cover the entire universe of stocks, but Zig is the largest 25%, and Deep is the smallest 75%, with a cutoff of $75 million, which is the smallest that you can put into an ETF. And so the Deep portfolio is 100 stocks long, all equal weight at inception. Uh, they all sort of have the same characteristics in the sense that it's the same philosophy that I have in Zig, which is looking for. 
I like really healthy balance sheets. I like free cash flows. Uh, and to the extent that I can find it in smaller microcap stocks, I, I prefer them to be buying back stock rather than issuing stock. And they're, 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 it's it's sort of it's my favourite part of the market. It's where I kind of got my start. So it's nice to be coming back to uh, to small and micro. Yeah, so so for those who don't know you, so you had it. Your start was in the smaller small cap, air cap uh, arena, right? Yeah, I ran a little blog on a website called Greenbacked, which is how my Twitter handle is the same. It's still Greenbacked. It's a funny spelling. It's G R E E N B A C K D. The idea was it was like punked. You remember that Ashton Kutcher show? Yeah. Like where you pos- I, I, I couldn't get the I couldn't get the dot com that had the ED at the end, so I just got the D. But the idea is that it was uh, stocks that had like uh, greenbacks were backed by cash. So I wanted net cash, net nets. And then on top of that, I wanted some sort of activist in there pushing to resolve the situation. Mm-hmm. And I found, it, you know, it's a, it's a pretty good strategy. The, the problem is that the net nets and net cash stocks are only around in sort of quantities big enough to create a portfolio at the bottom of stock market crashes. And most of the time you need uh, a different strategy. So I, I have this one that basically it's it still takes the same philosophy, like looking for a healthy balance sheet, but then it adds into this, uh, adds into that sort of equation, looking at the health of the business as well. And that's what I call the acquirer's multiple. So for folks who don't know it, that's basically using enterprise value on one hand, and that's uh, you know the cash on the balance sheet, any debt that it might have, anything that's like debt. So, preference shares are treated like debt. Minority interests because they affect your proportionate ownership of the business, and so then you're trying to come up with what an acquirer would be paying for the totality of the business, and then you compare that to what you're getting, which is the operating income. And so uh, that's the acquirer's multiple, and that's the strategy basically that we use in the funds. So that's the first cut. We find things that are cheap on that basis, and then we do some other stuff as well. But that's the first step. So it's looking for absolute cheapness. So on your on your website, it looks like you, you kind of cover your, ET, um, your ETFs. So when you're you're using this acquirer's multiple um, framework to um, allow um, to give individuals who subscribe to your website opportunities to build their own portfolios, right? Um, Right. So we have a website that's got, um, just because I found it so hard to screen for these stocks, what I was doing originally, so Joel Greenblatt had this website where he had magic formula stocks. And I knew that because I had done some research that if you, so basically what the magic formula is, it's looking for cheap on one hand using enterprise value to EBIT, which is a similar metric to the one that I use. And then it's looking for return on invested capital on the other hand and combining them together and trying to find companies that are cheap but good, sort of following a quantitative implementation of what Warren Buffett does with his wonderful companies at fair prices. When you test it, it does really well, beats the market. So I published a book in 2012 called Quantitative Value, where we tested that, really does beat the market. But the interesting thing is what drives the outperformance. And it turns out that all of the outperformance and more is driven by the value part and the return on invested capital part actually reduces your performance. And the reason is very simple. It's because return on invested capital is a highly mean reverting series. Mm-hmm. And so that's not to say that people shouldn't use it. There's about 4% of stocks resist this mean reversion in return on invested capital. And so when you're looking at those type of stocks, which is really what the Buffett stocks are, 
You got to look for, you know, you spend 5% of your time identifying those stocks. You spend 95% of your time seeing whether the competitive advantages are real. It's it's mm-hmm. working out what the competitive advantage is, seeing how sustainable that return on invested capital is. Can they continue to predict their margins and their returns over time? Because if they can't, then they tend to be the profitability leaks away and then you've overpaid for a stock that's ultimately probably just a cyclical that's closer to the top of its business cycle. So the uh, the testing that we did showed that the acquirer's multiple did a lot better by itself. And so I don't use return on invested capital in uh, in the site. We just use we just rank them on uh, on the acquirer's multiple, and then we do other things in there as well. We make sure that they they don't have any statistical indications of fraud or statistical earning indications of earnings manipulation or distress. Mm-hmm. And then we want to make sure that the cash flows roughly match the accounting statement, the accounting income. Mm-hmm. And then we just combine them all together and we, 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 we provide a list of them. So there's a free list, which is the top drawn from the top thousand. And then there's a paid, uh, paid screener that that is for the small and micro and for the uh for, for like the, the what i call all investable which is basically the biggest 50 percent of the market what i found was what i found interesting by is that you do you, you do take like um a look at the quality of the earnings and, and the balance sheet and you look at the, you look for fraud potentially some signs of fraud um and you do also read the footnotes so it's not totally there is a qualitative part to this to what you're doing here um, or is there? I mean, when you so you, you so look- that's true. So in this, the screeners don't incorporate that, but the the funds definitely do. So the I, I spent before I was an investor, I spent a decade as a mergers and acquisitions corporate advisory lawyer in Australia and in San Francisco. And a lot of what you do as a corporate advisory guy is you find, um, you know, there's a company that wants to do a transaction. They want to raise some money, or they want to buy another company, and you're executing the transaction. So there's a lot of uh, the documents that execute the transaction. Then there's also reporting and producing prospectuses and things like that. And so part of the prospectus process is making sure that the um, the financials give a fair representation of what's actually going on in the company. And so when I um, invest in these companies, I basically reverse that process. So I'm doing a forensic accounting analysis, trying to make sure that the financials of the company do in fact reflect the economic reality of the company. And in many cases, most cases, by far and away, the very vast majority of cases they do, every now and again, I come across something that has, particularly in small and micro cap land, has uh, like a very big convertible note from Mm -hmm. a hedge fund struck at, you know, they they needed the cash, struck at pretty favorable terms to the hedge fund. And it basically has the potential to wipe out any of the equity in there, so you need to know that those things are in there. So that's that's part of that process, just to make sure that that hasn't worked its way into the fund. Mm-hmm. Great, great. And so, have you have you kind of like um, ran a turn, you know, done some uh, analysis where okay, well, um, some stocks made it, you know, made, were high or high scoring based on your rankings, you know, and then they there was a a, a red flag that was missed that that showed up later. You, you know, uh, on the on the risk side, has that ever occurred? And it's not it's not occurred in the live operation of the funds. I've found that um, in in back testing on occasion. So one thing in particular that it picked up a lot of the Chinese. You know, remember the Chinese stocks. So this is before the stocks 
uh, I know that I know you remember the Chinese fraud stocks, but um, that you know they all screen very cheaply, right? And you look at these financials and you think this that these are really some of the best businesses I've ever seen, and they're really really cheap. What could possibly be going on here? Right. And the answer in many instances was was just outright fraud. And right. the way that the way that you caught that. This is one of the difficulties of fraud. It's 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 really difficult to catch unless they're doing something that's sort of ruining the ratios in the company. And so it, it, it were, they were being picked up on those sort of on those sort of um, uh, analyses. But there was there was some that were, you know, I I know of investment firms based in Los Angeles that invested into Sino Forest or Sino Forest. I'm not sure how right. to say it, in, including sending an analyst out to sort of view the forest well paulson did. did did paulson do that yeah i think i think i think he was invested in i believe he was invested in in Sino forest yeah so was that that was and it take, a take a take a look at our forest the the analyst confirmed the forest did in fact exist just turned out that the company didn't own it yeah i remember when that during that time we were doing um when Sino forest had occurred there was another company um not listed in the u.s was it in germany called bamboo something and it was a similar Sino forest situation and we, uh, you know, we had all the due diligence, but we couldn't short it because of Germany's rules. So we ended right. up not, we not because it was, it would have been some legal ramifications on doing it on our, their, their, uh, um, which was ridiculous. Their kind of barometer inside information was kind of murky. So like our, if, if the normal person in Germany couldn't find the due diligence, you couldn't write about it or it was, you know, it was inside information. So basically traveling to China, I guess, to do the due diligence was considered out of, I guess, potentially. You know, well, I think it's I think it's weird sometimes the way that they define insider trading laws because the insider information, if you independently do some study, you can potentially generate inside information that even though you're outside, you've 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 made yourself an insider by figuring this stuff out and therefore you're not allowed to trade on it. Right. Some some of the implementations of insider trading laws around the world don't make a lot of sense. No, they they really don't. And you know, they're just it's it's just it's it's um it just isn't and it's not consistent too so it's, you're you're really in a tough situation there right what, what do you do and um germany had the same problem with uh wirecard right yeah yeah they yeah. chased the they chased the shorts there really hard <laughs> let the guys doing the actual fraud let them keep yeah. doing that let's get these shorts man right right well they were pretty good here at least in the us for letting us do our thing you know for, when i was we were doing a lot of shorting for a while geo um, but what we've seen, and this kind of c- comes back to um, some of the underperformance we've seen in some of the value stocks, um, is that there hasn't really been a kind of pursuit by regulators of fraudulent companies after that China period between 2010 and 14. Um, yeah, and, and what happened, I mean, there was, the, then you had the pump and dumps, a lot of that going on. And, um, and then even now going in that whole kind of movement moved into like mainstreams, you know, the regular stocks outside China. So it really put... I think regulators in a tough decision situation here. How do how they were out there halting these Chinese stocks for a long time? They were actually doing the right thing, um, but now what do you do when you have this whole financial system that might be based on a lot of it based on these kind of companies that are walking the fine line? You know, it really, it, what does it mean for the financial system itself? And that's frustrating. And um, so you have these companies that are outperforming good companies that are low quality. It's pretty amazing. Then they well, have. They will- then you start thinking like, well, wait, maybe the low quality ones are, you know, what, what am I missing here? Maybe they're priced that way because they're like back in China, right? You have P's of fives growing 100% a year and all these wonderful balances of cash flow. And what were you missing? And obviously the market was telling you 
that they were PU5 or, you know, these new rules for a reason, right? The market knew it was a fraud to some degree. Well, there was, I, saw a, I saw a value investing congress uh, in Pas- Pasadena in 2010, something like that. And it had the guy from Hill House Capital. I just, I'm sad that I can't remember his name right now, but it was the most spectacular presentation I've ever seen uh, from a value guy, probably still to this day. He really does know his stuff. He's a phenomenal investor. And it was just during that period, it was before all of the shorts, I think, had been uncovered. Maybe there were some questions out there, but nobody sort of knew why the Chinese stocks were. Right. It, the, the, the reverse takeover stocks, whether it, they were all frauds or whether they were just a handful of bad eggs or something like that. And someone asked him, would you invest in these stocks because they all look really cheap? And he said, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't touch any of them. <laughs> yeah, and he was, he was, I mean, I got lucky, but I mean, I got this lucky. <laughs> were you long? You were short them, weren't you? I was long in the very beginning. And then, um, you know, and I, I, ironically, the first stock that I went long in the space really made, made a lot of money on was the last one we kind of went short in the end. Like, I mean, I wrote about it, actually. So um, I was very long these stocks because I wanted to trust the SEC documents, these kind of things, you know, and, and it just started not making sense. It was like, you know, these stocks can't be that cheap you know, and have these wonderful balance sheets and growth. You and know, that's, uh, that's the tough thing with value, right? You're always asking that question. When something gets really undervalued, why, why God, am I the one who gets this opportunity to invest this? What, what does everybody else know that I don't already know? So it takes yeah. some, um, I don't know, it takes a little bit of faith sometimes to buy some of these things, knowing that probably the next reporting period is the one where you get to find out why everybody else knew it was a bad stock. <laughs> right. Yeah, and that's a whole garbage thing, right? I mean, growth reasonable price, if, yeah, I mean, on the Garpers, you know, wouldn't buy things that are too cheap because they thought they were missing something, right? And um, and that's kind of conundrum we get into. And you know, there's something too, man. Like uh, revenue, I was going to ask about revenue growth because you know you're focusing a lot on balance sheet analysis and the cash flow, and um, which you know, which which can you know look very healthy even in periods of where maybe the company is not growing revenue for for some time, right? There's that value there, and I think a lot of that maybe is that's P you know, if you can get both of those, you have a pretty powerful, I think situation right now. And so you don't, I don't revenue growth. Is not is that really not part of what you're looking for here? Right. Or is it? No, I'm not, I I don't, I don't need revenue growth. Um, You know, it's nice when I can find it, but I much prefer bottom line growth to top line growth. And I know that there's a lot of people who feel the other way. They much prefer top line growth to bottom line growth. I just like to see, I, I, you know, I think that, Growth has historically been quite difficult to project and quite difficult to value properly. And typically what uh, has been an easier thing to do is just to identify things that are too cheap. Stocks that are shrinking, businesses that are shrinking can still be very good investments. I know the last sort of 10 years aside, which is the last 10 years has sort of blown a little bit of a hole in this theory, but it's been a pretty good it's been a pretty good theory for a pretty long time that you sort of identify these things that are just babies thrown out with the bathwater. And even though the, the revenues are shrinking, the underlying business or the underlying intrinsic value on a per share basis can still be growing if they're managed properly. And so there are a lot of businesses that get to that cash cow stage that with a good management team in there, you can still get very good performance out of those stocks. You know, the last 10 years have been a little bit miserable for that kind of strategy because it has been a market that has vastly preferred growth, growth at any price and profitless growth. But, you know, when I, when I think about value, 
what I what I'm looking for pretty simply is I want um, you know I want some sort of yield for the most part because I like that the cash actually flows through. It doesn't have to be a dividend necessarily. I don't mind a buyback yield or something like that. And then I want you know reasonable returns on invested capital or over a full cycle where the business might be trading at a trough now because it's it's going through one of its poorer periods where it's it's struggling a little bit more but given enough time it's the it's got the balance sheet to survive and it should look a little bit better at the other side of the little business cycle that it's going through and i think that those are the kind of stocks that they just get too cheap and then they really don't have to do much to start um, performing again so everybody leaves the industry because it's just too hard to make money in there. And all of a sudden there's this period of time where they do make these super normal profits before all the competition moves back in again. So I don't mind buying cyclicals. It's not been a great strategy for the last sort of five years, but it's the the long-term track record for it is quite good. Yeah. And I think that would just be, and that's in the long term, we might have to be thinking it's longer and longer term. And it's a tough mantra to keep preaching. Right. But it's, it's at at some point, we, you know, we know that it will that will turn. And one thing I was I thought I'd see more of, man, is like um, acquisitions. These companies, now there was a period where we saw some of that happening, and it just kind of stopped. I don't know if you noticed that um, in this smaller cap space. Um, and I'm wondering why. I thought at least probably maybe private equity would get involved. And a lot of these firms, even when they were selling out, weren't selling at great multiples. Um, and I'm I'm wondering if you have an opinion on that at all. You ever thought about that? Um, what's going on there? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I I I don't know what the rate of, other than just sort of, it's been an unusually uncertain period of time, politically, um, and I, I just wonder whether that sort of had some, some impact. It does seem like private equity's raised a lot of money. Private equity has been out there, sort of, but not really doing anything with it. But I look at the companies that. Uh, Another another possibility is that all of the firms have got quite good at fending off hostile takeovers, and so they they've all got pretty lofty ideas about where they should be selling, right. and so they're just not open to any sort of transaction. But I, you know, I look at some of the businesses in there now. So I I don't know if this is small enough for you, but Diamond Hill, you know the Diamond Hill. Mm-hmm. So that's a value firm um, that's listed. The ticker is DHIL. I hold it in the fund. I hold it in deep. And it's like, you know, phenomenal, phenomenal returns on invested capital because that's the nature of the business. It's a very good business because it all sort of falls down to the bottom line. Mm-hmm. It's a very simple business. They run about $20 billion, got about a $480 million market cap. They're, they're all cash. They don't have any debt. They pay out a dollar dividend per quarter and then every year they have a special dividend. So last year it was 12 bucks. This year it's 16 bucks. So that... So what you're getting? Oh, yes. Oh, sorry. Last year it was nine dollars. This year it's twelve dollars. So it's a sixteen dollar yield on a one hundred and forty dollars stock, which is uh, you know pretty good, about as good as it gets. And then the the business should scale really easily. So once value sort of turns around a little bit, these guys are going to be beneficiaries of it. So that's the kind of thing that I'm looking for. The the growth. You know, it looks like it's going backwards on a revenue basis because it's a value fund and they've been underperforming and losing assets, but the underlying business is still very, very good. And they get a little tailwind at some stage and that becomes a much more interesting, uh, you know, it could easily be a billion dollar company. So it's a, it doesn't have, not much has to go right for them to sort of turn it around. It's had a good performance off its bottom here, I see. Uh, it's had a little nice little run here. It's bounced pretty well. Yeah. 
So, um, so that was this last is one of my questions here. So I see this. I think they have about what's their outstanding share? Like three million outstanding shares. Is that right? They've been I, I'm I, off the top of my head. I don't know, but they've been they've been pretty good at buying back stock too. So you don't have so when when you and, and you have a market cap requirement, but you don't have an outstanding share count requirement. So you'll buy. No, I, I know you mentioned that during our podcast, and I found that kind of interesting. But no, it's not. It's not the absolute number of shares is not really that relevant to me. I, I understand why you do it. You're looking at companies that are still sort of at that financing stage, trying to break out of. Um, you know, really, the those those micro caps are really sort of um, on the transition from being small businesses to being sort of listed micro caps. And I, I, I've come from, you know, as a lawyer, I did some work with those smaller companies, with promoters trying to get stocks from, you know, basically an asset or some sort of uh, startup into that list universe, which happens a little bit more in Australia than it does here. And that's often the way they do it. They issue a lot of stock, they're financed through stock. Um, And so I I understand why you do that. It's not so much of a requirement for me because it's, that's typically not how these businesses are financed. These tend to be sort of bigger businesses, even though they're micro cap, they tend to be, they're micro cap because they've shrunk, they've been squashed down on a valuation basis. You know, it's funny, like I look at quite a few of the names in the portfolio and I recognize them because they used to be, they used to be holdings of Zig that just by virtue of the valuation, they've fallen under Zig's threshold and they fall into the deep universe. And uh, so I just thought it was, you know, which, which happens that, that, that's okay, but they they typically they're bigger businesses that have been bigger businesses rather than sort of startup stage uh, promotions. Now I, I, I now I'm looking, but she was, but what I like with you you will actually buy some stocks that that do have low share I mean share accounts you know and you're not averse to doing that you're more you're looking more at the market cap right in terms right. of yeah now I'm looking at your um I think your your your, your deep um, ETF here and. It's pretty. You have you have you know a pretty good amount. You have I think you have about thirty three stocks. Yeah, there's a uh, hundred. There's a hundred uh, names. Oh, well, sorry, under, sorry. Under under uh, five hundred million, I think. So I yeah, have, you have a I see, good, yeah. You have like, and then you have um, there are twenty eight. Um, I think between that and um, maybe a billion. So it's pretty. Well, you, you you do go pretty low in the market, which is which is nice. Yeah. Well, we, like I. The, the cutoff is $75 million for, and that's an NYC listing requirement. But aside from that, I'm not, I don't really care so much about the size of the company provided that the underlying business is worth owning and the underlying and the company is worth owning. Mm-hmm. So on your, on your website, will you go, I mean, you don't have that requirement there. I guess you'll go as small. As- There's no minimum on the website. Yeah. So you'll find companies that are smaller than that in that screener. Have you found that the smaller you go, the better the performance is? Um, and in, in the statistics, it does. It does seem to. It does seem to be that way. The problem is that the the smaller you go, the wider the bid ask spread becomes. So, so are you measuring performance or are you measuring a wide bid ask spread? I'm not. I'm not entirely sure which. Right. So I'm always a little bit, you know. And liquidity dries up as naturally as you go smaller. So I'm always a little bit careful about making any claims like that. But, yeah. you know, it, it does make sense why that would in fact be the case because there just, just aren't as many analysts following these little companies as there are following the big companies. You know, Apple, everybody knows Apple. Everybody's followed Apple. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody owns an Apple mm-hmm. device probably somewhere in their house. Right. Um, when you get down to these little ones, like I, I, how do you even pronounce the name of some of these things? I don't even know. Like it's not, it's not something that anybody would deal with. Like Diamond Hill, I can pronounce that name, but that's yeah. not anything that anybody would necessarily know. Like they wouldn't know that firm. 
Sure, sure. And there are lots of you know lots of business to business type uh, businesses that just you would never you would never uh, come across otherwise. Okay. Now you um, I think you, you, you part of your membership, uh, Tobias. You, you you do give some one-on-one type of consultation. I think is, is that right? Did I see that? Read that right? Yeah. So I have a consultation uh, thing on there that people have used for. Uh, to give a presentation to a um, to a group or to um, uh, to give a to help somebody design a, a strategy, but I just leave it up there as a sort of option for folks who are uh, who want to talk to me in some sort of professional capacity, but it doesn't fit anywhere else. Okay, so I mean, looking looking in the future, I mean, so you you know, obviously are deeply entrenched in value investing and and and, you, and your approach. Um, I'm wondering if you thought about maybe like eventually um, expanding the other type of strategies. Um, if, for example, there's this one thing, you know, you know, we like it called it the change, looking at companies that are changing. So I guess theoretically as, as the markets become more efficient over time, I mean, I don't necessarily buy that in what the space we play in, in, in this nano cap space and the whole, um, is there value maybe in like, you know, kind of combining some of what you're doing with a little qualitative, something to predict change, right? So finally, these companies that don't look pretty yet, but maybe the trend's moving that way, and um, maybe uh, maybe your opinion on that. I know it's tough because there's something that's like there's a catalyzing event that you can't predict that maybe takes them there, right? I, I, I don't mind that approach in a theoretical sense. It's just that to the extent that I have any skill in that area, I, I don't know that I that I do. That, that I think that if I if I think about what coverage I have in the U.S. at the moment, I have coverage of basically everything that is quantitatively cheap and that's sort of from you know the large large cap zig to the small and micro uh deep and so the part of the market that i am missing when i was talking before about that like that's the 96 percent of stocks that don't have the um any sort of uh competitive advantage but i'm missing the four percent of stocks that do have a competitive advantage so those are the companies that everybody wants to own but they never really get cheap enough. So it's just a different mindset. It's a different approach to those stocks. So to the extent that I would do something else, it's more likely that I'm going to be hunting for uh, companies that are better businesses. So it's less of a question about valuation. You know, it's that 5% valuation question, 95% spent on the qualitative side, but still trying to figure out where they have, um, you know, do they have competitive advantages? Are these things really enduring? That's probably more likely the direction that I would go. And it's, it's hard to find them, right? It's hard to find those companies that have that competitive advantage. And what I find um, a lot of, and the space I play in at least, is that these competitive advantage, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, they're, they're maybe in smaller markets, right? Or markets that are falling that nobody wants to be part of for a while. And it's you funny. you'll find that in the nano cap world, you know? I find, I, I find some of those companies do fall into the, uh, the large cap screener every now and again. I, I think that, the large cap screener on the site has the best collection of companies that I've seen in a really long time. For whatever reason, quality, the value bucket has been getting higher and higher quality. Nice. And I think I just think the reason is that the, the market has just prized growth so highly that the only thing people are chasing now is revenue growth. And to the extent that doesn't something doesn't have spectacular revenue growth, mm-hmm. it's kind of thrown out. And it's not considered. Whereas, you know, I, I, revenue growth to me is, it's good to have, It's but it's not essential to have. What What is essential to have to me is 
growing intrinsic value at some sort of speed. And the way you grow intrinsic value is either through good growth in the underlying business or through a management team that manages the capital structure and the shares outstanding in such a way that they're buying back undervalued stock. Yeah, that was really, and you make a great point there too, about revenue growth. That was a really big challenge for me. When I first started investing, I was, yeah, revenue growth was a big part of it. And then I, then it became less as I moved on and looking for these like maybe five or 10, 15% revenue growth, nothing crazy, but really expanding margins, expanding their cash flow um, and earnings. That worked really well for, you know, 20, 20 years. It was really good. And all of a sudden, you know, 2008 comes along and everything changed after that. Um, and it became about revenue growth. And it, but it took me a while to figure that out. Like, you know, this, why is this? Yeah. I had to wait longer for a lot of my stocks to, you know, uh, appreciate to a value I thought they were fairly valued. And it took me, um, you know, I have a debt to some degree, but I don't like it because I yeah. know it's, it, you're playing with a loaded gun. I think I mean, that's how I feel. You know, at some point it's going to matter, right? I think the sweet spot is like 13% because it's like everybody's screening. They want 15% and above. So I want, I just want 13%, which is still really good growth. Yeah. And then if you've got a good management team in there and there, um, they, you can grow intrinsic value faster than revenue growth if they're doing the right thing, particularly on a per share basis. There's lots of levers that they can pull. Make the company more profitable. Use that profitability to um, buy back stock. All of a sudden, you get very, very rapid intrinsic value gains in your in your business, and it's not growth that the average retail investor is looking for because they're looking at you know revenue growth or they're looking for names that they recognise. So, I think that there's a sweet spot of companies that fall in that sort of thirteen percent, still still low teens, but still pretty good rates of growth where the business value is growing even faster than that. It's just that it's optically not obvious on a ratio basis. You have to sort of dig into it a little bit more to see it. I, I can think of examples. Some of them are in the portfolios, but I uh, there's one in particular that I want to buy that I don't have in the portfolio that I just I can't mention. But next time we talk, I'll tell you because I'm going to buy it. Uh, I can't wait. To, you have you have any stocks you want to share with us at all? I mean, do, you, do you do that? Um. Well, Diamond Hill is one. Diamond Hill is one that's been in the in the business, I, I think this one's funny just because it's in the company. It's in the it's in it's in deep as well. You know, uh, you know, Big Larry Holdings. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with Big Larry? So I hold Big I hold Big Larry. I'll tell you why. I I, can't, I know this just makes everybody laugh when they when they kind of hear this this company, but it's big, run big, by Big Larry Holdings. Yeah, Big Larry B I G L A R L A R I. Okay. The ticker's B H. Yeah, okay. Let me get out here. So for people who know this company, they'll they're probably laughing. For people who don't, I'll tell you why everybody else is laughing. So um basically it's run by this guy Sada Big Larry, who's kind of uh, an unusual character, idiosyncratic personality. Um he's a very good investor. Let's just say that at the outset. For the last 20 years, he's outperformed the market. But he's used he used to do this through a hedge fund. He's used his hedge fund to get control of Western Sizzlin and Steak and Shake and a few of these kind of businesses. So it's kind of a restaurant and he's used it to buy some other assets as well, including Maxim. And uh, he controls the A and the B shares. He owns sort of, I think he owns like 60% of the A and B shares. And he's used Big Larry to buy his, um, to buy his hedge fund. So his hedge fund is then in turn invested in Big Larry Holdings. So it's this complicated kind of structure. Um, 
for a variety of reasons when the stock price the, the stock price performance is kind of uh, reflected in the performance of the hedge fund, which is then because it's wholly owned, it's run through the accounts of the business. So the financials, the the income statement includes the stock that the uh, performance of the underlying stock. It's a crazy, crazy setup, and so you re- and that, on top of that, he's been quite dismissive of shareholders. So. Those, those, those are the best ones to buy, right? <laughs> so, so that's why it's cheap. You can buy it at like I think it's, I think it's got uh, sort of six hundred million dollars in cash and uh, securities, and you're paying like two or three hundred for it at the moment. So that's it's very, very undervalued, and he's a pretty good investor. Just the the issue is that is he aligned with shareholders? And I I sort of argue that he is because his compensation is as a holder of the. Uh, he's 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 still paid on this sort of Buffett zero six twenty five basis. So he's incent and it's his name on the door. So he's incentivized to make this thing perform, right? Which I think he ultimately will, and I think it's very very cheap. So I understand why people don't like it. I I know that people have got there are all these hilarious stories about people going along to the the general meeting and sort of explaining to him the like the moves that he's made, and him <laughs> just saying, "Well, sell your stock." Like he just he's completely unrepentant. So it's it's sort of it's one of those things that there's nobody in the world who really wants to own this thing, but I kind of think it's too cheap, and I think he's going to do well enough out of it that if he performs, that it's worth him making the effort. I, I think it's going to go okay. And look at that. I mean, some of those actually um, people like that um, who are I mean, he's he's probably cocky to some degree, but he's like you know you, you either trust me, or don't trust me. You take yeah. take it or leave it kind of guy, right? And um, yeah, and I've I've, I've had pretty good success with those guys. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm gonna check this one out for sure. That's awesome. I never heard it. I'm sorry. I just have to, they have two million outstanding shares too. So you're hitting that in the market. Uh, two of them in a row. <laughs> <laughs> he's a, he's a big Buffett guy, so, which yeah. is why it's it's the ticker's B H like Berkshire Hathaway, big Larry Holdings. Excellent. I see it here. Yeah, here it is. Yep. You know it's um, it, you know been back to this you know this whole um, there's a there's a company that I own um called an agent information, I think software. And uh, it's a small little company here. I mean, I'll see if that's the right. And it's just boring agent information software. It's a more library management software company. Been around forever. I mean, like maybe 30 years or longer. And um, actually, I'll tell you exactly. Let me see if I can get this here. Is it controlled? It's about 40, 50, 51% I mean, insider ownership is about, I think 50%, 51%. Um, and you know, the CFO, the CEO right now, you know, it was, it was handed to him by his father and oh, his father yeah. had given it to him, you know, so definitely very, you know, closely controlled with family. And, um, you know, this is an interesting thing because, you know, this is, this is a typical situation I like is um, the fact the company was founded in 1969, actually. Uh, I mean, when IPO in 69 was founded in 1950. And then, you know, they've gone through this, like, you know, they were a typesetting company and then eventually that morphed into this whole like library management software company. <laughs> and, um, you know, they have 5 million in revenue and it's, it's you know, um, but, but this is where their growth, they may be growing 5% a year revenue, 10% if we're lucky. Um, and they have all this wonderful so- software assets that have been really targeting the library market. And um, there's a p- really is a piece of segment of the market of, of what they, they have two markets. They have one that's um, they just it's like back office software management, which is very competitive. And there, there's about 9000 libraries that they go after, uh, mainly public libraries. 
and, and a much, but it's a much bigger market. I think closer to hundred thousand if you if you look at all libraries, and um, the uh, but there's another piece of the market which is um, this kind of like um, called Share It, which is basically helping libraries um, more efficiently manage their library sharing kind of um, system, lending system, right? And it's pretty cool. And so basically, you know, um, any any but it's a small it's 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 worth about ten twenty million dollar market. So right. when I'm talking to Paul, he's like, oh, you know, everyone's leaving the market, just leaving it to us for something. No one wants it. Like, <laughs> love to hear. And then they're a five million dollar company, right? I'm based in a, about four million of that, I think, is with with that thing. And they're they're in 15 states. And this is a typical situation where they've been around for so many years, just hanging around, waiting for this catalyst to happen, where you know um, it takes it to a situation where now revenues maybe one day grow a 20 percent. That's what's cool about these ones that are growing like five, ten percent. Eventually, they stick around so long that they hit this like little flywheel thing where you've gotten that first kind of return where they're growing 10 percent and all of a sudden boom right then they get the then they get the growth guy investors come in well you've been in for and you're going to sell to them you get that last leg of the multi-bagger which is pretty yeah awesome. yeah it's never happened to me but i, I imagine it feels pretty good when it happens <laughs> well, well you got it well it, when you're wrong, it doesn't. I mean, that's that's the problem for. That was a lot too. <laughs> that's the problem for value guys, right? Always selling too early. I think that that's the that's the 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 toughest thing for a value guy is just to, when you get that little bit of a run, just to hold on for the just to, just to let it go for a while. I've never been very good at doing it, but I think that it is the probably the missing ingredient for a lot of value investors. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, I guess in order to get, you got to be outside the you know the comfort zone, right? And you got to go outside. And it's not easy doing it. Because you know you might be holding a stock that's not, um, you know, that's overvalued to some degree. Right. It's really difficult, and it really challenges the um, sell discipline. Um, yeah. And which is why you try and find stocks that get acquired one day. That solves all problems. <laughs> it does. That's it. That's it. <laughs> but but uh, that hasn't. You know, it's it's been a lot less these days. But um, yeah. So I just thought that there's another few other companies like that I own too that I've owned that have these really small kind of really niche niche isn't it they own all of it and seems you know there's there's value there right and some of them get acquired um yeah man so i mean this is the one thing i, I had a let me go through my questions real quick so i had a bunch of questions i still want to ask you um, but i think you might have went through a lot of them here um so i mean i guess that is a good question to ask you so you, you kind of brought it up and in terms of what and your on your website you do talk about the holding period like you you you, you put the formula together step one two three at the end of the year kind of reevaluate uh, what's going on so what is a typical holding period for you? Yeah, I think it's I don't really I, when I put something into the fund, I don't really think about it for about a year because I think it takes you know you often what are the chances that you buy something at its low very low it's more likely that you buy it and it's still in the process of turning itself around and that can take a few quarters typically before that starts sort of manifesting and so i i just reevaluate it at the end of the year and if it continues to be um deeply undervalued hold at that point and if it's sort of risen then then sell it uh i think that um that's it's hard to sort of argue for that kind of discipline in a market that's been like this, where you've only been punished for doing anything that I've sold has continued to rocket higher. Right. Uh, and, you know, anything I bought has continued to go lower. 
but that's you know that's, that's sort of the difference between the discussion you have at this point in the market and the discussion I was having you know at the at the lows a decade or so ago when through 2007 eight, nine, there was nobody who was kicking themselves for selling too early everybody was um, you know wishing they'd sold when they had the price like, oh, I had the price I didn't sell because I thought it was going to keep on going higher so I try to I try to be pretty disciplined I I sell um, Typically, what we're doing is we're selling to, to, to rebalance into a, a cheaper opportunity. So it's a pretty easy decision for the most part. Where the, the nature of the, the ETFs is that they are deep value ETFs and they have to be run continuously for new shareholders, new investors coming in. And so we're always trying to be concentrated at that very cheap end of it. And when anything leaves that that very undervalued part, then we're rebalancing out into something that's that's otherwise undervalued. If I was running a more discretionary type partnership, um, I wouldn't be doing it that way. I'd be holding. I'd be looking for stuff that I could hold forever, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, that, those kind of businesses, like I said, that's about four percent of businesses, and that might be overestimating. There might be two or three hundred of those globally, right? And maybe there are like fifty or a hundred in the states, or maybe one hundred and fifty in the states, something like that. So they're very, very few and far between. Everybody knows what they are, so they never really get particularly undervalued. They're really. The only way you kind of get into them is through some sort of, you just have to wait for the market dislocations. But I right. think you get one about once a year. There's a pretty good market dislocation about once every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically, you know, the, the difference between the high and the low for a stock over the course of the year is about 3x or 30% of its high. So if you're, um, if you have your, your laundry list of things that you, or your shopping list of things that you want to go and buy, Whenever they go on sale, you go and pick a few of them up. I think that's a pretty good approach. So if I was running more discretionarily, that's what I'd be doing rather than the sort of continuous thing where we, we have to be continually pushing down into the cheapest stuff. Right, right. Awesome. Um, so I guess we have to talk about, you know, we have the elections over. Do you have any opinion in terms of what this means for stocks, what it means for, for, your, for the value investing type of style approach here? Or do you even give it, do you even care at all or? Yeah, I sort of think that um, it, you know, the, the, the who the, the who the president is really doesn't make much difference to um, to the before. I, it doesn't. It's not something I really ever worry about much, and it's I, it's one of those things just outside of my control. So there's no point I think worrying about it one way or the other. So um, you know, there's certainly d- different policies impact probably at a tax level. That that might that might make a difference, you know. I I had no idea which way the election was going to go, and I had no idea which way the stock market was going to go. Like when on, on Friday afternoon, or whenever it sort of came out, it looked like Biden was leading, and then like if someone had said to me on Monday the stock market will be up ten percent or down ten percent, I would have said, well, that's of course. So then it, like it was up a lot, so I was like, well, there we go. That's you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I I have literally I have no idea. I just have no expectation about what's going to happen at any at, at any point in time. I just think you you're better off focusing on the stuff you can control and just not worrying about anything else. It's so true, man. And so many people are just you know we waste so much time thinking talking about this. You know, what's gonna, the if the if the if then and they end up making them, they end up making no decisions anyway. It's just all about talking. Right. And, and I called it whatever, but uh, yeah. I mean, I'm with you on that. I mean. There's going to be winners and losers. It's our job to find them, d- depending on the environment, right? And what I've learned too is great companies just figure out how to adapt anyway. That's it. That's what that. That's it. You just if a company can't figure out how to adapt to one environment or another, you probably weren't going to own it anyway. So it doesn't really doesn't really factor in too much, unless there's some sort of specific policy that you know that the new guy is going to take off that was helping or hurting 
right. one of the companies. And if you can see that coming and you know that it's going to be a catalyst, but then those things always take longer to work yeah. out than you think they are anyway. Yeah, dude. I, I remember um, I, I've never time, you know, been a market timer and never, uh, especially around the elections. And I got, you know, because of social media and, you know, everything's so in the open, I got sucked into it and, and, on the last presidential election. And I had all these nano caps. They were just getting crushed. I don't know if you remember that before you know, Trump got elected on his first. I remember value was getting beaten up on the way on the way in. Yeah, it was getting it was getting. I was I this I was this was incredible, you know. And I just got I got spooked out, and I sold a bunch of stuff. And that was the first time I've ever done that, and I I paid dearly for it because, I mean, it was all the infrastructure stocks. I had a, <laughs> I had everything that basically you know was would have been good for the Trump victory. I didn't care. I mean, they, they, in the end, they both would have done well, you know, uh, but I, and I just, I learned my lesson just to, you know, if, if I'm going to take him, I'm going to take a hit. I don't, I don't care which way it's going to go. That's it. I mean, I, I thought the, the craziest thing about the last election was that everything started rallying on the Thursday before the election. Everybody sort of seems to remember it as being like a, uh, if the, maybe the market knew that Trump was going to win, I don't know, but, or maybe, you know, I, I have no idea, but it's sort of, there'd been a lot of uncertainty coming into that. And then, I, I saw it in the value stocks. Everything was sort of getting crushed, and then everything just took off. It was great for my strategy that early period after that that election. But then it sort of it hasn't done much since that period of time. It's all bumped sideways. So, you know, today I know that these I don't know exactly when the podcast is coming out, but this is the Monday. Uh, this is Monday, November 9th. and so it looked over the weekend like Biden's got got there and. Uh, for whatever reason, today was a very good day for cyclical value type stocks where everything sort of rocketed up today. Right. And uh, I had no idea that was going to happen on Friday afternoon. If, if, like <laughs> literally, if someone had said it'll be the other way around, I'd be like, oh, well, that, I have no idea. I have literally no idea. I had a bunch of stocks that um, were kind of playing the, um, I mean, I don't buy, I don't buy, the, I don't buy COVID themes or anything, but I, but I happen to have some that were, had a little bit of that theme to them. Um, you know, I bought them not because of COVID, but because, you know, maybe COVID enhanced, in my opinion, their long-term growth trend. Right. And what happened was, you know, so I had these stocks and, um, but when you had the vaccine announcement, had, we had no idea that was going to happen today, right? Right. <laughs> and anything- Well, that, it was going to have such a big impact. Yeah. I, I mean, I thought it was, yeah. It's, and it, I was talking to my buddy about this, Ed, and we were talking about it like a month ago, like, ah, this is going to be a non-event. It was, it's not going to even mean anything. I think because it was such a, a 90% success rate, they were saying with the vaccine, that was what was interesting about it. And no one really, I, everyone in Fushi, 50, 50%, you know, was the success rate we were, everyone was talking about. And this was, you know, you know, of course they were wrong. <laughs> you know? And what happened today was all these tra- all these momentum investors that were in these stocks and have no idea what they're investing in. Like we got to get out of the, we got to get out of the COVID trade, no matter what. You know, without reading anything about the companies, you know, and the press release, and there's some of these companies were going down. We're like, hey, even before this happened, you know, before any of this, we're gonna do fine. Actually, when, when the economy reopens, our, our, our trajectory is even better because of the things we're addressing post-COVID that are going to be important. And people didn't care, and I couldn't believe the swings we were seeing today. It was amazing. One of the, one of the funny ones today that I was I was just sort of following peripherally, but beyond meat, BYND. So. McDonald's came out and said that they've developed a uh, McPlant burger and yeah. McDonald's 
spiked on the news and beyond fell on the news. So then beyond released a press release saying we worked with McDonald's to make the McPlant burger, at which point they sort of rallied really strongly. And oh. then after the after the close, they've released their their earnings and they've had this massive miss. And so, oh, no. <laughs> so the stock's off like thirty five percent after us. I don't know what to make of any of it. It's, it's that all that stuff's sort of too hard. I, I just that's one of the nice things I think about being a value guy is that you focus on um, you've got something to focus on besides the stock price. I'm always just I want to see what the next quarter reporting holds. Did the does the has the intrinsic value held up or grown over the course of the quarter? Right. Where's the stock price relative to that? So I just think that's a lot more calming. It's a lot more soothing than sort of following. The, the gyrations of the stock market every minute or hour or day. Well, what's nice too is is it, it just gives you a framework of discipline, I think, right. which is really important. And consistency wins this game. It can, can win this game too, right? I'm sure we can, we can hit those multi-baggers, but being consistently right and being able to make decisions and sleep at night and know what you're, you know, right. is a, there's something to be said to that too. And I think that's, what, and that's an advantage to what you're talking about also. You just have to make all of the mistakes. And then once you've made all of the mistakes, you never you never finish making mistakes, but I feel like I've made like a decade's worth of mistakes over the last decade. So how was your some uh, things. Speaking of how was how was how was your behavioral kind of emotional mindset into investing? I mean, have you ever had a hard time with emotions and, and, and taking over? I think that when I first started out full time, that was when I really felt it more than I ever had before. Before I was doing it full time, I was pretty good at it because you know I'm only doing it on the weekend or after hours. And then when I started doing it full time, got so much more time to kind of really mess yourself up. That's when it <laughs> first kind of kicked in. And that's when I that's when I became more quantitative because there's a lot of a lot of that is anti-behavioral bias. But the longer that I've done it, I think that part of it is just, you know, you know, you've got, to, you've got to get over this desire to be right or wrong. So I've stepped out of that. And um, and I think about it more at a portfolio level. And I also think in longer time frames. And I think all of those things sort of help. Did you ever in your life do, try, and, try and trade at all? Did you ever go through that phase of day trading or swing trading at all? I've never gone through a phase of it. Um, I've done like once or twice, like literally only once or twice. I I knew that there was a there was an announcement coming in something, and I just traded it for the announcement. And because I just because I was so over the stock, I knew that something. Was, so I just over massively overweighted it for what I would normally hold, knowing that I was going to sell it the moment that the release came out. So I've done that on a handful of occasions, but because I had very specific knowledge about something that was happening. That's why you're so happy. <laughs> it worked. Yeah, that's right. I, I'm, I'm a that. You don't have to go through that trading stress. <laughs> yeah. I'm a terrible trader. That's that's what I've learned. I've I've just I, I'm just a garbage trader trying to get in and out of positions. So I, I I have zero skill there, negative skill there. I don't enjoy it at all. You know, it's just, it was a it's stressful as hell. Stressful as hell. And, and it's just, it's it's you can be right eighty percent of the time. It's not twenty percent you're wrong. Well, you yeah. only think about the errors. You only ever think about the mistakes that you make. Yeah, it's and it's just it's. it's and naturally hard to like, oh, how stop losses? Well, until it gets there, right? Yeah, that's it. It just bounces off your stop loss like a ping pong ball. Yeah. Like a golf ball off a concrete path. The moment that you put the trade in or not, it goes the other way. Yeah, it does. I, I guess people can do it. And I mean, um, I've never been the best at it either. I like, I like having a, re- a fundamental reason for doing things. But, but I mean, I'm sure there's a talent there, right? I mean- Oh, I think I'm. I'm sure that you can get good at a particular. I'm sure people understand how something trades. I'm sure you can do it. I'm not one of them. 
And uh, one last thing, uh, you, you know, momentum. Uh, I think that was something we talked about on our podcast before. And um, is that something um, maybe you maybe use your personal investing or do you, you believe in it, I think, right, to some degree? The, I use it on the short side to make sure that the stuff that I'm shorting is not doesn't have a great deal of momentum in it. Um, because I just think that shorting's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a dark art. It's not necessarily a reversal of value investing. It's sort of looking at, you really want, um, you know, junky balance sheets, distress, statistical earnings manipulation, statistical fraud. You want those things present in a short. But if I use that screen and then I look at the market, you know, that portfolio probably goes up 35% a year because it's all the pretty junky stuff that's speculative and people like. Right. So on top of that, I, I just make sure that it's, that it's trending down. That sort of, for whatever reason, the market's either trying to just figuring it out or doesn't want to support the story anymore. Because often the stuff that I buy has immediate needs for cash flow and it either needs to raise some um, debt or it needs to sell some stock. And if they're kind of trending down, I just know how hard it is to do it. When I was a when I was a M and A attorney trying to get those deals across the line, when the stock price is going against you, that that the mark keeps on getting set lower and lower, and the, all the size of the raise gets bigger and bigger. It's been a really friendly market to those kind of businesses, so it hasn't really hasn't the shorting hasn't been a great experience so far. But I, I think that when the market falls over, you really get to see the value of the shorts. Oh, yeah, the shorts have been—they haven't worked at all. I mean, short sellers are being crushed, uh, especially like in 2019. Was a, 20 was a pretty tough year for a lot of good um, stories that seem like frauds. But it's just right. uh, have, have you have been lucky enough to be uh, short when like a muddy wash report come out or a fraudulent report has come out? No, never. I, I've I've been lucky enough not to be short Tesla over the last year <laughs> because I have been short Tesla on occasion. I've, I think I've made money and lost money. Nothing nothing particularly great there. But you know, I would never be in something like Nikola. Like I'm never in something that ramps and then falls off because I wouldn't ever short the ramp. I see. So I would never be. I'm never trying to pick the top because it, I think it's just way too hard. So I tend to be in stuff that it's sort of fall. It was something that was very popular. It's just fallen off the radar, and then people have kind of forgotten about it because they've moved on to other more interesting things. And I'm just catching the tail end of the of the short. So your short strategy is based upon um, is it more more on liquidity or more on fraud or a combination of both things? Like um... it's uh, it's it's sort of, it's still sort of the reverse of the long portfolio. I'm looking to the extent that I can determine a valuation which is not easy uh they're extremely overvalued you know they're losing cash they've got heavily indebted balance sheets um and there are some of those statistical indications of something wrong with their accounts like the cash flows just don't match up with the with the accounting statements so i um then on top of that the, the stock price is trending down so it's um it's you know sometimes it's hard to identify those sort of stocks but there's no um so you're you're still you're basically relative value to everything. You're still looking at valuation more on the short side too, just like you are on the long side. And the the fraud element adds to the story a little bit if you if it's if it's there. Yeah, it's that that you know to the extent that I can value these things, often I can't because they just there's you know they they're all narrative. The story is in the narrative. The reason that they're so pumped up is because they the story is very compelling, and it's the the financial statements just don't reflect the story at all. Mm-hmm. Great. Any, any opinion on regulators and what they, what they should be doing? Are you a little? Are you have? Um, are you happy with the way things are going? Are you you like the way free markets are kind of handling it? It's a, it's a tough line, I, right? Which I mean, I don't I, I don't really have any specific thoughts of my own on those things. I see people complaining, and I, I, I you know I, I see people complaining about the SEC not enforcing 
you know, being, you know, slapping Musk on the wrist for his little things and then not following up with those, uh, those kind of things. I don't really have a view. I, I just don't know. I don't, I'm not close enough to it to know what they're looking at, what they're not looking at. Right. They're in a tough situation because I mean, I mean, they're they going to take to actually find, you know, they can taking a maybe short seller's report at face value as opposed to, you know, doing it yourself. And there's a lot of, I mean, there's so much mayhem out there, so much fraud, pump and dumps that theoretically the SEC would have to go through all that, you know, one, you know, instead of that, you know, trusting these reports necessarily, right? I think the, the short, like let the shorts do the let, let the shorts do what they do, which is to release those reports, and they yeah. they're, they come out pretty regularly. There's a lot of shorts out there who do pretty good work, and so that's let the market that, take that's care. That's what you do. Right? Market in the market, um, you know, you know. But the cool thing about China was, and you know, these these stocks had to fail. They were so fraudulent that they, 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 they were they're going to fail, right? And it was so easy to prove the fraud. I've been on I've been on the wrong side of short reports on a few times. I held St. Joe's when David Einhorn came out with his second short report on St. Joe's, and right. uh, I was present in the Value Investing Congress in New York and watched him walk through this 128-page slide deck that was excruciating because they'd like driven the streets. And that was at the time that um, Bruce Berkowitz was long. Bruce Berkowitz was fund manager of the decade. Lives in Florida, right close to this thing. Should know it pretty well. And Einhorn had gone through this 128-page deck in detail, you know, driving the streets, pictures of the the houses not being built. And they kind of asked Bruce Berkowitz what he who was long. <laughs> They're like, "What do you think?" He sort of like, "Ah, it'll work out." And I went, "Oh my god, sell, sell Mortimer." Oh man. That wasn't great. And then Einhorn shorted me again. Einhorn dropped a bomb on me again with AGO, uh, a short guarantee, which I, I still think AGO is a really great stock. Uh, Dom Federico, the guy who runs it, is super smart, good business. It's just that it's got a whole lot of headline risk. and It sold off sharply when Einhorn shorted it. So Einhorn's got me twice. Oh, no. Well, you payback. You need payback. Hit my battleship <laughs> twice. <laughs> yeah. Well, th- well, thanks. This is awesome, Toby. I'm really glad you did this today. Um, I yeah, think, my absolute pleasure. Great chatting to you, much. I know you're always. So, what do you any any what's on the next in the docket? Are you doing any more um, podcasts or any kind of engagements in the future here, in the near future? Yeah, I have. I always I, while I'm while deep is fresh. I'm out sort of talking about deep and and trying to let folks know that there is the smaller micro cap value ETF that uh, I, that's the the last thing in the world that anybody wants at this point in time. But I, I do think that it's a good idea given how bad the sentiment is and how beaten up they have been. And I think that. Today was a big turnaround for for value, and I, at some stage, value is going to go back to its sort of long run trend of doing pretty well. So I think that today could be the beginning of something. Well, I'm glad you're doing it. I mean, it's it's good for the space that you do on this too. Uh, I love that, and I'm hoping I'm hoping some of my stocks will find your way into your uh, <laughs> in, in, into your index. I looked at it, I looked at it and saw, saw some interesting names. I recognized so that was good. You got some big enough. You got some big enough stuff to get in there. There's a few. There's a few. <laughs> But today, oh, they went, today they were smaller than they were on uh, Friday. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's happened to a lot of my stocks too. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks, Toby. It was awesome. And um, work. I guess anything, any kind of thing you want to talk about in your sign off, where they can find you and. Yeah, if uh, folks want to look at the screener, that's on acquirersmultiple.com and it's got links to all the books that I've written. Um, if you want to know more about the funds, acquirersfunds.com. So the two tickers are Zig for the long short value fund and deep for the small and micro value fund and uh i think that's it excellent thanks toby are you there uh, robert yeah yeah robert is here yep uh 
you know, you guys played very well together. That was that was a really nice play date that I just saw. You know, oh, good. And, uh, I really, I really, I really appreciate that. Um, so, uh, real, real quick, I'll, I'll land the plane. You can find out more information about avoiding the crowd with Mosh Sway Don at avoidingthecrowd.podbean.com. You can listen to this podcast wherever podcasts are available, and you can also watch this interview on the SNN Network YouTube channel, which is YouTube.com/slash SNN Wired. I think that's all I got. I was going to ask a question, but I, I think we covered everything. So, yeah. yeah, with that. All right, guys, take care. Have a good one. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Bobby. Thanks much. Thanks, man. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network and Mosway Don are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy, sell, short, cover securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value if we are long and fall if we are short. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast.